Ronaldo is ready. Strikes. We are mere days away from the Champions League final, the boys in white, Real Madrid, and Jurgen Klopp's squad, the Reds themselves, Liverpool. Uh, very exciting week coming up. We've got some relegation and promotion talk, uh, as well as uh, Alexi Lawless becoming a, uh, a big-time sellout, and some coaching carousel stuff, and a uh, an Italian legend potentially moving on to a French foe so uh, these are some of the things that we have as well as uh, one of the worst plaques you will ever see uh, worse than a dentist typically will see and also uh, one that will I believe go down in history as uh, a, a legitimate rival to the uh, the bust of Cristiano Ronaldo at the Madeira airport in Portugal but until then uh, we'll we'll eventually get there uh, I'm Russ Joy at Joy on Broad joined as always by Phil Kaidel. you know him from uh, CrossingBroad.com as a contributor, but of course, you also know of him as from his work at Bleacher Report covering world football and Manchester City. Phil, how are you? I'm doing great, Russell. Thanks for asking. And I'm amazed at how much we have to talk about insofar as there haven't been that many results since the last time we spoke. But as you know, seasons wrap up and it just transitions into all of these items and issues that we will deal with today and it's going to carry us right into the world cup which is going to carry us right into new domestic seasons it really does seem as though soccer never ends yep it, it certainly does and and while we were kind of expecting that the uh the season would die down there are a few things that of course are going to be at the forefront uh the the not the least of which is the champions league final um which we've been kind of talking about and previewing for for quite a while now um this real madrid side against liverpool it should be a fantastic matchup. I think it's going to be a uh, a high-speed death machine kind of game. I would not be surprised to see this become a shootout, uh, not a penalty shootout, but like a, a legitimate high-scoring affair. It could just as easily, I guess, also become a game where Liverpool sits back, takes on the brunt of the Real Madrid attack, and then goes on the counter, and perhaps they're able to get uh, Marcelo caught up in the offensive third, and they burn down that, that right flank for them offensively. And are able to uh, you know create a chance for Mo Salah. So we'll see how this this game plays out. I know that you wanted to kind of predict uh, starting 11s. I don't know. Do you have your starting 11 ready for uh, for Liverpool? What you would expect to see? I do. First of all, I'm going to respectfully disagree with the suggestion you made that Liverpool is going to sit back. When we discussed Liverpool and Manchester City earlier in this tournament, there were many suggestions at that time that Liverpool might sit back and try to absorb pressure and hit City on the counter. And my analysis then was, no, that's not who Liverpool are. They're going to be aggressive, and they're going to try to score goals because they really can't trust their defense to absorb pressure. Liverpool sitting back as a recipe to go to the dressing room at halftime down two or three to Real Madrid. Much like it was against Man City, Liverpool's only mandate in this match with Real Madrid is to pour forward and take their chances and try and make Real Madrid absorb pressure. 
because I'm looking at this 11 that if I'm Jurgen Klopp, I go with. You have Karius in goal. You have Trent Alexander-Arnold and Dejan Lovren, Virgil van Dijk and Robertson on defense. That's not a murderer's row. Defenders, van Dijk's a great player. Lovren is prone to errors and Alexander-Arnold's a kid. So I can't sit back and hope that that four can hold off uh, the, the defending champions who have Cristiano Ronaldo and so much attacking talent. I can't do it. Um, the midfield for Liverpool, if it's me naming it, is going to be James Milner and Jordan Henderson, Wijnaldum, and of course, uh, Mo Salah and Sadio Mane. Now, some people say it's a 4-3-3. For me, it's a 4-5-1 with Salah and Sané going up and down the wings and creating havoc. And with, obviously, uh, Firmino as the tip of the spear. I think that's the best 11 Liverpool can offer. And I think that if they play the way they have played in most of this Champions League, frenetic, uh, pressure being brought to bear against defenders, and clinically finishing chances, they have a very good chance to win this match. So on the uh, the Real Madrid side of things, there was a rumor going around that Zidane had already drawn up his lineup. He wanted to play a 4-4-2, uh, but the club president apparently is uh, is unhappy with it and is now applying pressure that he wants Zidane to roll out a 4-3-3. And, and I guess this is kind of what it was looking at. So uh, in Zidane's reported lineup, um, it was going to be uh, obviously Kaylor Navas in goal, Danny Carvajal, Sergio Ramos, Rafael Varane, and Marcelo in the back with a midfield construction of, uh, let's see, it was uh, Casemiro, Modric, Kroos, Isco, with Ronaldo and, Be- and Benzema up top. Uh, who's the one guy that's been left out of that four four two lineup, Phil, that we've been talking about being the game changer and the next level guy for them? Is he Welsh? Uh, I believe he is a dragon, yes. Yeah, uh, that's Gareth Bale. No mention of Gareth Bale in this reported lineup, and apparently Real Madrid um, president is is very unhappy. And I guess part of this is, you know, um, Florentino Perez wants to see Bale in that starting lineup because he's thinking about making the next move you know, I guess the idea of transferring Bale away at the end of the season and what better way to get legitimate value for him than for him to play significant minutes in a Champions League final and potentially be the game-changing player that, you know, nets home a winner or creates enough dangerous chances that, you know, uh, teams that have kind of been out of the, the running for Bale or have kind of moved on from considering him as a future cornerstone kind of player, perhaps they see him step up on the biggest stage once again um, and and they can finally get some some decent value. Like we said last week, there's no way that Real Madrid's going to get back equal value or legitimate value. I, I would say I would I don't even think they'll get fair value for whatever they get for Bale. It really does come down to whether or not uh, Florentino Perez really thinks that you know just getting Bale off the books is is uh, you know that beneficial if if they're ready to get over the injury plagued kind of tenure that Bale has had at Real Madrid. I still think it would be. Um, a, a poor decision on their part. I still think they could retool and really build around Ronaldo Bale, perhaps uh, another player that we'll get to a little bit later in, in transfer rumors. But uh, I, I do think it would be a, a massive mistake to get rid of Bale. I, I would hate to see, and this is, I guess, one of the other things, Zidane, you know, if, if he's going to go with this 4-4-2, I think it's fine. And I think the players make sense. I think it's a, a good lineup. I don't think it's nearly as dynamic, obviously, as you would get with Bale. Perhaps the thought here would be you start with this 4-4-2 and eventually you do kind of 
you know, switch it up a little bit and go to a 4-3-3 and bring in Bale and he's got fresh legs, maybe in the 60th or 65th minute, he, you know, really starts to wear down the defense out on the flanks. And then perhaps at some point, depending on what the scoreline is, if you have to go into extra time, you know, you've got Bale coming off of, it's been a while, but coming off of injury, you still, you know, might want to have him uh, ready to, you know, kind of strike late in games. And if it ends up going to extra time, it certainly wouldn't be a bad thing to have a, a relatively fresh Gareth Bale. I will say, though, the one thing, I guess, kind of with freshness and superstars is Ronaldo has been pulled around the 60th minute of the last few league games. And so I guess part of that is, you know, an effort to preserve him uh, by Zidane. There are a lot of things that are kind of going into this Real team. And um, I don't know what your thoughts are on any of that. That was a lot. Actually, you hit on two of the uh, main points I was going to make. So we are very much in step here. First of all, I agree with you. As great as Ronaldo is, I would not bet on him playing all 90. And if it goes in extra time, I don't think he'll be able to make it through uh, additional time after a 90-minute match. Um, he expends a lot of energy doing the things he does. He makes it look easy, but you know he's also not the youngest player on the pitch anymore. And poaching goals isn't as easy as it looks. You have to hustle and get yourself in specific positions. You have to wait for service, and you have to make a half dozen or a dozen perfect runs to be able to capitalize on the one or two times you'll have a chance to put the ball in the net. So... Yeah, having Bale on the bench and ready to come in for Ronaldo, if you're not going to start Bale, that's his highest and best use. The other thing I'll say, I'll agree with you 100%, if Real Madrid's thought is that they're committed to moving Bale on after this match and after this season is over, they have to be hoping against hope that Bale gets on and scores. Because that goal in and of itself could be worth 25 or 30 million pounds in terms of transfer value. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think I think uh, ultimately, you know, the way that that this match plays out, uh, we're going to obviously have very different narratives kind of coming coming out of this match. If Madrid wins, uh, it you know it's it's this unprecedented third consecutive Champions League final victory. It would really, I think, solidify uh, Ronaldo's all time kind of uh, legacy. Although I think we know that he's going to go down as one of the most elite players, one of the top players of all time. I do think that if you're able to win a third consecutive Champions League final, perhaps that does start to put some pressure on those who have been saying for a long time that Lionel Messi is undoubtedly the best player of his generation. I don't know how much this pushes the needle, but uh, it, it certainly is something that we have not seen Lionel Messi be able to do. We haven't been able to, uh, he hasn't won consecutive uh, let alone three in a row. So um, I, I don't know. I guess it depends on how much you weigh the domestic leagues versus champions. But I, I definitely think that this kind of elevates Ronaldo to a, a whole other stratosphere if if he's able to lead his team to victory. I I am somewhat worried about his fitness. And, you know, if, if you think that Bale's going to be able to give you 90 solid minutes, then maybe it does make sense to bring him in in the second half. But once again, like, I, I don't like the idea that a uh, an owner is going to you know, impose their will on tactics and the game plan going into it. If if Zidane believes that a four four two that doesn't feature Gareth Bale is the best way to go to to line up to start at least against uh, Jurgen Klopp's team, then 
you know, he should be able to make that decision. I mean, he already is feeling the pressure, and I would not be surprised, as stupid as this sounds, I would not be surprised to see Real Madrid move on from Zidane if they're not successful in winning this. They finished third in La Liga, which is, you know, unacceptable by practically every standard. It was clear that somewhere around January, Zidane decided to kind of throw in the towel on La Liga and really start to make a pivot towards the Champions League once again. So ultimately, you know, I guess for the club, they have to decide going forward as well, do we want to be a team that are champions of Europe or do we want to be a team that, you know, is really in contention for the domestic title? I would argue it's better to be the champions of Europe, but a third place finish is really not uh, a success by any stretch uh, for Real Madrid, nor is the fact that they finished so far off the pace from Barcelona acceptable as well. Yeah, I had to jump in here real quickly. Okay, first of all, we are lionizing Real Madrid and, and at some level fairly. Obviously, what they've done in the Champions League in the past few years is remarkable and amazing. If they win this match, there's nothing you can say other than that they are unbelievable champions who rise to every occasion. However, in the last six to eight to ten weeks, we were all watching when Real Madrid basically almost failed to get this far, right? I mean, the narrative of a Real Madrid's season would be a whole lot different if one bounce here and one call there in the matches leading up to this final had gone the other way. So it's really hard for me to sit here and think about, well, you know, give Zidane all this credit for pivoting to the Champions League and putting all his eggs in that basket and look how it paid off. It almost blew up spectacularly in his face. But here we are. Now, the other thing that happens every week on this show, it seems to me, is that you put me in the enviable and yet unfortunate position of defending Lionel Messi against Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm not really that into this debate. I don't really have a dog in this fight. But as somebody who watches world football, for me, Messi is not assailable on the La Liga level or even in the Champions League level. If you really want to take shots at him, remind everybody of how bad he's been for Argentina. I'm here for that. But, you know, Barcelona wins the league at a trot this year. They almost are undefeated in the league. And that kind of gets swept aside. And yet Ronaldo is this relentless, unyielding champion because they continue to have remarkable success in what really is a short tournament. So, yes, I would argue that the league titles and the excellence over the course of a league season has more value in the big picture than does success in tournament play, which by virtue of the fact that there are so many fewer games being played is a lot more volatile in terms of results. All right, that's fair. I'm not trying to put you in this unenviable or enviable position of, of Ronaldo versus Messi. I just think that, you know, uh, I'm always going to uh, to lean towards the uh, the obviously more skilled and, and overall better player in Ronaldo. So... You know, so you don't want to have this debate, and then you just, no, I'm just jab I'm just, away again. I'm, I'm just throwing, just throwing okay. it out there. Good, uh, I got it. So I guess let's move on. So Champions League final, I'm, I'm really excited for it. Where are you going to watch it? Haven't decided yet, actually. We should. Um, wa- why are we not watching it together? That's a great question. Well, there's still time. Maybe we should sort these plans out off the air. The listeners yeah. don't need to hear this. That's true. Uh, somebody actually uh, reached out on Twitter and said, where is the uh, Crossing Broad FC Champions League? viewing party we'll have to set that up for next year i would yeah, not I be saying, surprised 2019 i think that's an excellent idea i think it is um I, I do think that there's a chance that we'll do something um in one of two facets i think that there's a possibility of trying to get people together 
perhaps for a, a World Cup viewing party of some sort, um, or even perhaps something else. Um, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe a crossover with one of our other um, podcasts on the on the network, and and we'll see if we can work something out, maybe for a Union game or something, and uh, and go out and enjoy it with the people. I don't know. That's an idea. So uh, anyway, let's let's move on to uh, the FA Cup. Uh, Chelsea took down the the Red Devils of Manchester United. Uh, what were your main takeaways from this matchup? My main takeaway was that this match was everything we all knew it was going to be and were afraid that it was going to be. It was dull. It was disappointing. It came down to a Phil Jones tackle on Eden Hazard that Jones had no business trying to accomplish. He Jones had actually run Hazard into a position where De Gea is ready to make the save, but Jones doesn't trust the best keeper in the world for reasons I can't understand and tries to essentially button hook around Azar to get to the ball, takes him out. Your man in mind, Michael Oliver, rightly points to the spot and Azar scores. And it's 1-0 in the first half. And yet anybody watching that match in that moment had to figure that's going to be it. There's not going to be any more goals. There's not going to be a lot more action. I think this is all we are going to get to see today. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. The rest of the action at Wembley Stadium wasn't action at all. You had the trophy presentation to Chelsea, and it's apparently lame duck manager Antonio Conte. Um, You had Mourinho doing his normal trying to be a graceful loser and failing horribly at it. Uh, And then coming out in the post-match commentary with some unbelievable quotes. Let me share a couple of them with you. Mourinho is asked about his loss to Chelsea in this FA Cup final, which of course leaves Manchester United trophyless this season. And Mourinho says, quote, I congratulate them, but I don't think they deserve to win, unquote. And pushed a little bit further, Mourinho says, quote, it was a bit hard for us to play without Lukaku against a team that defends with nine players, unquote, which is, of course, a not subtle dig that Chelsea parked the bus against Manchester United and that somehow Mourinho found this offensive. That's rich. Pot that is like he's got to be trolling everybody with that, doesn't he? Mourinho has built his entire career and legacy on 10 men behind the ball and forcing you to make that one mistake that leads to a counter, leads to a goal, and he wins one nothing. And then after the match, he takes all the credit for being a tactical genius. Well, Conte did it to him in this match, and Mourinho couldn't give Conte even a shred of credit, which is ridiculous. Now, fortunately for Antonio Conte, while Mourinho wouldn't give him any credit, Conte was certainly willing to give himself as much credit as anyone would allow him to. He described himself as a serial winner, and I don't mean Cheerios. He described himself as a serial winner. Humbly, I will point out on my own behalf that that sounds a lot like what I thought he was going to say if he won this match from a show or two ago. I said Conte was going to come out if he wins this FA Cup and say, you know what, if Chelsea thinks I'm not the man for this job, that's great. But here I am giving them another trophy on the way out the door. So who's the problem here, Chelsea Football Club or Antonio Conte? And that's exactly how Conte put this. Now, the question for Chelsea is, are they going to be able to hold on to Azar? Because he just does amazing things for them on his day. The problem is his days don't come around often enough. There's so many times that he doesn't feel like playing. It's hard to count on him. But then again, he may not be replaceable. So even though the match itself 
was pretty dreadful, it still produced enough talking points and narratives thanks to the personalities of the managers that I guess in the end we got what we deserved. Am I the only person who's not absolutely in love with Aiden Hazard as a player? Well, no, I, mean, I just like, got done I, saying that he doesn't I, always like, turn up. Yeah, I mean, but it, it always feels like there are people ready to make an excuse for him, uh, like why he isn't this, you know, generational transformative talent, like why he's, uh, you know, so wildly inconsistent. He can look like an an elite an elite talent, but then, you know, the next week be completely invisible. He's playing for a legitimate club in a very competitive league, and to me, there's no reason that Hazard should not be the uh, the game breaking, game changing kind of player. Uh, week in and week out. He shouldn't be a guy that, that you don't notice on the pitch. He should be a guy that's absolutely in the headlines after practically every game. He's somebody that you should be following, uh, you know, whether it's it's league play or tournament play. Like, you should know where Hazard is on the field at all at all times. And to me, for a guy who's constantly in transfer rumors of going to a Real Madrid or a Barcelona or, you know, name your other team that has deep pockets... It just doesn't feel to me like he's ever really stepped up in the moment. It doesn't feel like he does it consistently enough for me to consider him in that upper echelon of players. Individual talent-wise, perhaps, but you know, overall, I, I, I just don't, I don't see it. I agree with you, especially since he's always been, in the last three or four years at least, surrounded by unbelievable talent. The Belgian national team is no joke, and Chelsea always have one of the most stacked squads talent-wise in the Premier League year-on-year, as evidenced by the fact that Chelsea have won Premier League titles with Azar on the club. You don't like it when I go to the age stats, but, you know, Azar is 27 now. This is pretty much put-up-or-shut-up time for him. If he's going to rise to this super elite level that you think he's capable of and that I think he's capable of if he brings it more often, you better see it soon because the problem is eventually what it says on the back of the bubblegum card is what you are. And I'm a little bit afraid that that's where we are with Eden Hazard. It's a shame for him. But like you said, uh, you know, for club and country, he's playing for two very talented teams. And I guess we'll have to see. I mean, with, with Conte leaving, it'll, I guess, all depend on who the manager is that comes in. I would think that if Massimiliano Allegri comes in, I would think that there's a decent chance that he's able to uh, kind of, um, you know, unlock and, and find that, that toy on the inside of the Wonder Ball and is able to, uh, you know, kind of reactivate Hazard and, and really make him you know, that, that talent that everybody seems to think that he is. Um, I guess let's, I, I'm not, but, you know, I guess kind of going back really quick to Mourinho, I'm not really surprised that he wasn't gracious in, uh, in defeat. Uh, I just kind of think at some point, if you're United, and I think I said this a few weeks ago, at some point, don't you have to wonder that Jose Mourinho could potentially kind of scare off a lot of top talent from, from wanting to play for your club? I mean, we know that, United is a team that has money. We know that they're a team that has, you know, a, a great history. They're a prestigious club. And again, they play in the EPL, which is a place where practically any elite player would want to go. But the more that, you know, Mourinho comes out and, and bashes and lambastes his own players, the more he comes off as a petty, whining jerk, the more I have to think that if you're a player, if you're a manager, or if, you, or if you're an agent, uh, I, I'm not so sure that I would want my player to go there. If you mat- line him up against, like, let's even say Jurgen Klopp, right? Klopp comes off as a guy who gives some tough love, but ultimately cares about his players. He's, you know, he's got a club that has some real history um, and, you know, certainly has elevated their game in making the Champions League final this year. If I'm, you know, Christian Pulisic's agent 
and I'm, you know, being offered these two clubs, would I rather see a guy who knows how to, you know, utilize his youth in a much better sense and, and with a guy who, you know, Pulisic had kind of played under and, and had a relationship with in Jurgen Klopp? Or do I want to send him off to a manager who legitimately in a lot of ways has kind of stunted the growth of a lot of young United players? And I don't think it's a contest. So let, let me borrow from a piece of the script that I was saving for later. But I think the question you've asked demands that I address it now. So Willian is a Chelsea player, at least for the time being. And Conte only started him a couple handfuls of times over the course of this season. Antonio Conte did not like Willian for whatever reason. If you ever watch Willian play, he has more skill and speed and craft, especially for a young player, than he really needs. He's got an abundance of it. Um, can he be a bit of a knucklehead sometimes? Yeah, sure he can, but that's the manager's job to harness talent. Well, Chelsea wins the FA Cup and Willian posts to social media a picture of the Chelsea players all sitting and celebrating with the FA Cup, and he uses cup emojis to block out Conte's image from the picture that he posts to social media. Now, that's a childish response from Willian, which is probably part and parcel of why Conte didn't favor him, okay? One of the transfer rumors that we were going to talk about later, let's talk about it now. Willian to Manchester United. Well, I agree with you a thousand percent. If I'm Willian's agent, I'm not getting him within 10,000 yards of Old Trafford and Mourinho because Mourinho will bury him the way he's buried Rashford and players of that caliber at United who he has not gotten development from. Martial in a lot of a lot of ways, right. Lingard, like these are all younger players who have, have had, you know, moments in the sun when they've been granted the opportunity, they've they've stepped up in, in you know, a pretty significant way. But yeah, he, he kind of buries them. And, and, and plays Mourinho's guys like so Marilyn F- F- uh, Fellaini, you know, <laughs> I don't I don't necessarily understand it. I don't know if he's just in love with the guys, David Luis Fro, but yeah. No, Marino just doesn't trust young players, and he relies on old professionals to do old professional things. Although that's kind of an odd thing for me to say insofar as the way he's treated Juan Mata over the last three years, both at Chelsea and at Man United, is borderline disgraceful. But... Mourinho plays favorites. Young players are not usually his favorites. And so Willian makes no sense at Manchester United. And again, that's about the worst move Willian could make. He'd be better off leaving the Premier League than going to United. Yep. I agree. Uh, We'll get to a few more transfer rumors, I think, a little bit later in the show. There was a a thing that came up over the week um, that I I hadn't really focused all that much on, and and we didn't discuss it last week. We kind of talked about the English Championship playoff, which we'll be getting to in a little bit. but I, I thought something that, that was really cool that I, I was learning about, and maybe I should have known about it sooner, was the Bundesliga relegation playoff. Uh, you can look at it as either a relegation playoff or as a promotion playoff, I guess, depending on your, your viewpoint. But to kind of give people an idea, the Bundesliga has 18 teams. And this year, the 16th place team was Wolfsburg. And uh, the third place team in the Zweite Bundesliga, in the second Bundesliga, uh, was Holstein Kiel. Well, the the Bundesliga and the Zweite Bundesliga don't just, you know, send two down and, and bring two up for promotion, right? They they actually have this third, uh, pl- essentially, playoff spot uh, where the 16th place team out of 18 in the Bundesliga has to play a home-and-home tie 
with the third place team from the Zweite Bundesliga. Now, I believe it's only twice in the last 14 uh, seasons has the Zweite Bundesliga team uh, stepped up and actually gotten promotion from this matchup. I think the last time it happened, it was Hertha uh, Hertha Berlin that were sent down. But uh, regardless, it doesn't happen much, but I think it's a really interesting concept. Um, You look at a team like Wolfsburg, they they had to go into... um, you know, a really, I wouldn't say it was necessarily the toughest final three stretch, but they had to beat Hamburg. They had to uh, to beat Köln uh, in the last matchup of the season, which they only had, I think, 22 points on the season. So they were certainly a, a very inferior side. But you had to beat Hamburg, who you needed to, uh, to beat in order to definitely avoid relegation. And they had to beat Red Bull Leipzig, which they did, I believe, four to one in the next to last matchup of the season. So Wolfsburg was in this really weird spot where on the 12th, they... Uh, they were kind of sitting in a spot where they knew where they were going to finish overall in the league. Um, and then, was it five days later, they have to go uh, and play a matchup. Uh, I believe the first leg was at home uh, to this um, Holstein kill team. They won 3-1, and then they finished it off uh, four days later with a 1-0 victory uh, over Holstein kill again. Um, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I really love the idea. I think, you know, obviously the worst two teams in the league should be relegated. And the top two and the the next level down should be promoted. But I love the idea of there being a two-leg tie uh, between the, not next to last, I guess the next to next to last, and the third place team from the uh, the championship below. I, th- I think it's a really cool idea. I would love to see it happen in uh, you know some of these other leagues. I'm not here to be negative about this because I do like this playoff that you have described and which I have learned about this week. It's super interesting. My concern, mild concern, uh, not not ruling this out by any means. My concern, though, is that even the third place side in the league below the highest domestic league in any given country is going to have competitive disadvantages by way of uh, wage payout ability, uh, talent on hand, um, those sorts of concerns that even the 18th place Premier League team, for example, or in this case, uh, Wolfsburg in the Bundesliga, um, it's just very hard for that lower league club to compete, even with one of the worst sides of uh, the league above. As you saw, you just mentioned, it's been, what, two out of 16 or two out of 14 that the lower league side has actually claimed the spot from the higher league side. Uh, here's a situation where Wolfsburg, who flat stunk all season in Bundesliga, they were bad all season, and they waltzed, sorry for that, uh, to a 4-1 aggregate over Ulstein Kiel. So I I like the English system better, um, but I'm not going to just dismiss what I'm seeing here in Bundesliga. Obviously, it's working well enough um, that they're going to continue it. But I do think that the competitive disadvantages for the lower league team team are very hard to overcome so let's really quick t- uh, i guess we'll transition this as part of the uh, the english championship playoff so aston villa um playing against fulham uh if you kind of look at this which teams are getting promoted next year to the epl we know wolverhampton's getting called up who else? part of city was also promoted already by okay. virtue of their second place finish in the championship so you've got fulham and villa and villa right yes uh fighting for that that third and final spot which is fine um who's getting relegated from the epl so is it swansea stoke and west brom that is correct okay so 
while I think that there's something to be said for, you know, having a competitive matchup between two teams like Fulham and, and, As- uh, and Aston Villa, I think it, you know, I'll kind of stand by this. I think it would have been more interesting to see, you know, if, if we're going to have to have a team like Fulham or Aston Villa, you know, make the jump up to the EPL. Uh, that, you know, certainly stands to reason that they're at least decent enough to uh, to make their way back up to the uh, to the main uh, the main table. Why not just have them in a matchup against Swansea? Like a, a home and home between Fulham and Swansea, I think, uh, could do a lot of good and certainly could potentially, you know, uh, raise Fulham's, um, uh, so what I'm looking for, raise Fulham's kind of standing in, in the international game or at least, uh, you know, give a little bit more exposure uh, to the championship um, table. I don't know. It's just I agree an idea. with you that I agree with you that pitting Swansea, which who finished 18th in the Premier League, Premier League this season, against Fulham in a two-leg tie for the last Premier League spot is going to draw more eyeballs than this Fulham Aston Villa match will. As much as I am fond of the Championship playoff because of its financial implications and because there's this Premier League spot up for grabs in one match, I agree with you that uh, people aren't going to come to the TV in droves to watch two second tier league teams fight for the last place in the Prem. I agree with that. Now, that being said, this is an excellent time for you to make this argument that Fulham, for example, or Aston Villa or whomsoever could compete on relatively even terms with the 18th place Premier League side. You know why? Because the entire bottom half of the Premier League is pretty bad. Once you get past, let's say, Crystal Palace, you can pretty much throw the rest of these teams in a hopper and draw one of their names out, and Fulham will give them a decent go. It didn't used to be this way. I mean, it used to be that the league was a lot more even in terms of the distribution of points. It used to be that, you know, 40 points guaranteed you safety. Well, this year, Southampton were safe with 36 points. Huddersfield with 37. The league is so top-heavy right now that the bottom half of the league is nondescript. And the competitive disadvantages that I described with reference to that Bundesliga playoff that we've discussed don't really exist quite so much with these championship sides. I mean, here again, uh, Fulham and Aston Villa have been in the Premier League relatively recently, and they both have recognizable name players, and they both have some ability to spend because they're clubs with deep histories and very well-entrenched supporter bases. So, yeah, in that regard... I would agree that the the Swansea-Fulham battle would be intriguing, uh, but at the same time, it's primarily because the bottom half of the Premier League is so bad. Yep. Uh, I don't know if you uh, happen to catch, uh, well, I don't know, maybe we'll come back around to it a little bit, Uh, the the disgrace that was the VAR call in the uh, DFB Pokal uh, final between uh, Eintracht Frankfurt and Bayern Munich over the weekend, but a very poor video assistant um, referee uh, decision that was made that you know ostensibly changed the entire result of that that uh, final title match uh, in Germany. I don't know. Maybe we'll get to it a little bit later. Uh, We've also we... never had the full on VAR discussion. It may be debate. It may not be. I think we'll save that for this fallow period that's going to come after the Champions League, but before the World Cup. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's. I guess move on a little bit. Um, some coaches, or did you did. Did we want to touch any more on the the championship playoff? No, I think we're all set with that. I mean, look, I'm fascinated by the idea that uh, John Terry is going to be starting this match 
for Aston Villa. And if they win, he's going to go back to Stamford Bridge in another kit. That's going to be great. Fulham has a player, Ryan Sessegnon, who is, I believe, 18 years old. He turned 18 recently and scored 16 goals for Fulham this season and just missed uh, making uh, the England World Cup squad. So as I, as I mentioned, both Fulham and Aston Villa have players that are worth watching. Now, at some level, I'll, I'll admit that they don't have enough players that are worth watching because if you look at the projected 11s for this match, there are a lot of no-names on there. But you're going to see one of these two clubs in the Premier League next season, so it's not a bad time to figure out who they are. Point well taken, Phil. Uh, let's move on to the coaching carousel. Arsenal has a manager. Tell the people about him. Well, you may have heard of him. His name is Unai Emery. Uh, last seen uh, leaving the scene of the crime as PSG imploded in the Champions League yet again. And then he stuck around and led them to a whole bunch of meaningless trophy wins in France, including the Ligue 1 title for like the 48th straight time or whatever it was. And Unai Emery went from being sort of a punching bag, laughing stock, what's wrong with this dude three, four weeks ago to the next big thing. He's 46 years old. He's taking over at Arsenal. He announced it today, I believe on his own website, that he's agreed to become part of the quote-unquote Arsenal family. He's not there to train them. He's there to manage them. As I said, relatively young manager, has dealt with big-time talent before, has won trophies, although a lot of those trophies in France don't have a lot of meaning. Candidly, Russ, this is a much better hire than I thought Arsenal were going to make. I thought they were going to hire Mikel Arteta, which I don't think would have been a bad decision. I think Arteta would have done a good job. But I think this reach for Emery makes an awful lot of sense given the talent that's already in place at Arsenal and the fact that really they have nowhere to go but up. They're not going to get appreciably worse with Emery pulling the strings. And as I indicated on one of our prior shows, and I was actually talking about Rafa Benitez possibly taking this job, but my point there was Wenger has underachieved with the players he's had at Arsenal and a Benitez and now I believe certainly an Emery can do more of what's already there. Plus, the new manager should get some leeway from that Arsenal board to spend some money. Those elements together for me make Arsenal a threat to find their way back into the top four. Uh, as we continue on in the uh, the coaching carousel, uh, Man- uh, Manuel Pellegrini is heading to West Ham, um, which was a- another position that I guess we kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess Pellegrini was, I think, a, a better or bigger hire, bigger name, uh, higher than I had maybe expected for them to have. So uh, an interesting hire, for sure. Well, it's a super interesting hire. I'm a little bit surprised that Manuel Pellegrini is interested in the West Ham job. I'm also a little bit surprised that West Ham is that interested in Manuel Pellegrini. And again, I've betrayed my Manchester City allegiance many times on this show. And I have great gratitude for Pellegrini for the job he did managing Man City after uh, Roberto Mancini left. Pellegrini won a Premier League title. He won a League Cup. I believe he won two League Cups, actually, for City. And was a wonderfully personable and tactically astute manager when he managed City. Pellegrini was tactically astute because he took a loaded, fast, skilled roster and turned them loose. Um, You know, everybody looks at what Guardiola has done with City now in terms of the number of goals they've scored in the Premier League and records he's set. And Guardiola deserves all the credit for having done that. I'm not trying to diminish anything Guardiola has done, but I will say that Pellegrini sort of 
is the bridge from the Catanaccio that Mancini preferred to the attacking that Guardiola puts out there because Pellegrini was one that really turned the horses loose initially. And that's great. And Pellegrini can stand on that history at City, but West Ham doesn't have anything close to the amount of talent that Man City does. And I know that's an understatement. I'm more trying to say, not only does he not have the talent Man City uh, had when he managed Man City, you know, West Ham doesn't ha- doesn't even really have the talent that, say, Leicester City presently does. Uh, and certainly not the talent Arsenal does. So I don't know how Pellegrini is going to manage this West Ham side unless there's a lot of turnover or he's given permission to blood a lot of young players quickly and you know try and find a way to create goals with a side that, look, while West Ham got to 42 points and finished a respectable 13th in the league with like eight weeks to go in the season, they were still in the relegation discussion. I'm not sure Pellegrini fixes that for them. Although you can also say that anything's going to be better than David Moyes. That is certainly true. It's interesting that you mentioned Lester, uh, you know, as we kind of intersperse these transfer rumors in the idea that Jamie Vardy could go to Atletico Madrid is, is very interesting and that Mahrez could be making a move to uh, Manchester city as per some of the most recent headlines. Um, I, I think for Atletico, it makes a lot of sense to go after Vardy. I think it's, it's been said uh, ad nauseum on, on this podcast, on other shows and articles and whatever kind of things that people are consuming. Um, we've we've certainly seen that it, it would appear that Antoine Griezmann's time with Atletico Madrid is likely coming to an end. Vardy could be a, a pretty decent replacement for him. Mahrez going to City just kind of seems like the rich getting richer. And I know that you had said before, I think it was last week, that while you know everybody's expecting a lot of these other teams in the EPL to make moves and we constantly talk about, you know, uh, Liverpool is obviously going to continue to go out and, and try to acquire players that fit Klopp, Klopp's system. United is certainly not going to sit back and stand pat with the team they have. They're going to continue to make adjustments in personnel. Um, you know, you had mentioned that City is obviously going to have to do the same. Mahrez is an interesting fit for him. Uh, I, I don't know, as you, you know, continue to break down this team that you love and care about so much, how do you think that Mahrez fits in potentially to City? I agree with you that it's the rich getting richer, but that's where we are in world football. And it's been like that for a long time. People bemoan the um, infiltration of foreign ownership and uh, oil money and basically robber barons coming in and shakes and sultans coming in and buying clubs. Uh, but as I often like to say, at the outset of the Premier League, Manchester United wasn't playing its pair, paying its players with coupons and rainbows and dreams. It was always money. So it's just more money now than it was before, but it's always been money. So Mahrez to City. Yeah, he improves what they have. Riyad Mahrez, two or three seasons ago, at his very height, looked a lot like Mo Salah has looked for Liverpool this season. Mahrez didn't score quite as many goals because he was feeding Vardy left and right. But Mahrez, Mahrez was capable of those special flick-and-trick plays and the bombarding runs and the clever and powerful finishes that Salah has shown. Mahrez did that in spades for Leicester in its title-winning season. And look, it's time for Leicester to cash out. The Vardy-Mahrez duo and that championship side, Premier League championship side, I should say, for Leicester, uh, that's not coming back. Uh, They had a decent finish in the league this season. They finished ninth. But 
that club's focus has to be on securing its future in the Premier League for the next, say, three, four, five seasons. Holding on to Vardy and, and Mares for another two or three years, that's not a good plan. Where does Riyad Mahrez fit in at Manchester City? Well, he fits right into the starting 11, pretty obviously. Uh, and I know that that's a pretty bold statement because City's starting 11 is pretty special. But uh, I hate to say it, I trust him more than Raheem Sterling, wouldn't you? And again, given the exertions that Manchester City expects to have in future seasons by way of competing for four trophies, the League Cup, the FA Cup, the Premier League title, and the Champions League, if they're going to be playing an average of 50 to 60 matches in a season, it seems like adding a guy like Mares is unnecessary and an overabundance. But it really isn't because guys get hurt. Guys fall out of form. Guardiola has expectations week on week that have to be met. And the more talent he has, the better, because again, all the other clubs in the Premier League are gunning for City. They're all going to try to get better. They're all going to add talent. He can't sit still. And if Leicester are willing to sell Real Mahrez to Manchester City, City should buy him. Going back to the Vardy rumor, when I first heard the rumor of Jamie Vardy to Atletico Madrid, I started chuckling. Now, that's just me being a little bit provincial. I'll admit that. But also try to imagine... Jamie Vardy and his haircut and his accent and his style of play and all of that uh, striding along the streets of Madrid. It doesn't really fit, does it? It wouldn't fit with uh, Real, but I do think it kind of fits Atletico's identity a little bit. I think he Well, would, that's what I was would, about to say. I agree with you. He'd be great with uh, Simeone. Yes, Simeone would do very well with him. And the more I thought about it, and once I got out of my own head and my own prejudgment, I thought, well, why wouldn't Vardy go to Atletico, and why wouldn't Atletico want Vardy? Vardy has shown in the last 18 months that he has a lot left in the tank. He can still fly, and he can still finish. And that's what Atletico Madrid needs, because they do everything else really well. So if they're going to lose Griezmann, Vardy's an excellent replacement, and it's a very sensible transfer if it happens. Sure is. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's move on a little bit. Club legends that are uh, on the way out. John uh, Luigi Buffon leaving Juventus uh when you first texted me about it and I, I wasn't by a computer and I, I was I think I was driving so I wasn't on my phone checking things uh you texted me that Buffon was out at Juventus I thought that meant that he was likely going to either retire or maybe he would pursue a contract uh at a ridiculous salary maybe in China but the the most recent rumors say that uh Buffon's uh entourage have arrived in Paris ahead of talks with uh, Paris Saint-Germain and the concept of Buffon leaving Juventus to go, you know, man the net for PSG just feels wrong in, in pretty much any way possible. And it's something that I, I certainly did not expect to see. And it's, it's not something I really support. Um, I, I just, I, th- I think it's a weird thing to do. I know that Iniesta before had said that he's, you know, very unlikely uh, going to play in Europe he certainly does not want to play anywhere else uh, in um, in Spain. I would think that there is maybe a small chance that City looks to bring him in, especially because of, of all that he accomplished with Pep Guardiola. Maybe, you know, at that point, Iniesta can kind of play as a uh, a, a player, assistant manager sort of thing, some kind of a, a transition of him, you know, kind of helping to establish younger players while also being able to play, you know, sparingly uh, in, in league play. And obviously, as as City looks to you know not only 
continue to build on the success of a hundred point season, but also, you know, to try to bring home some more, some more hardware. Um, the idea that Buffon is now going to go off and play in, in PSG is just filthy to me. It's I have the headline for it's it. Sturdy, and it? I feel like I need a shower after hearing do you, it. Do you want the headline for the Buffon transfer? Sure. Italy gifts France unnecessary statue. <laughs> I'm not sorry. It really is upsetting. I don't like. I don't like this at all. I feel. I really do feel like it. It's just. It's. It. It's like a violation. It's. It's. Uh, it's just wrong. It really. It really just doesn't feel. Feel good. Feel right. I, you're looking at an Italian club legend, and you're going to move off to PSG. Like, are you really chasing a payday at that point? What are you going to be able to accomplish at, at PSG that you could not have accomplished it at Juventus? Juventus has proven year in and year out that they're more likely going to go deeper into, you know, a European tournament. Uh, unless you're that bored with, you know, pursuing yet another Scudetto in a row, uh, do, you, do you really need the challenge of, and I say challenge uh, with with uh, absolutely no substance or, or stance behind it, but like, do you really need to go off and challenge for the league on title? Is that really how you kind of are going to put the bow on your career? I just don't see it. I don't get it. Go the play. Only... In, go play in China for like six times the salary that you were probably making with Juventus. Don't go to freaking France. It's it's a lateral move at best. The only rationale I heard, which sort of made sense on its surface, was the thought that PSG have had way too much talent to be as bad in the Champions League as they have been for the last two or three seasons. And while goalkeeping hasn't been the problem, leadership has been. So the thought would be, and it's funny that I just used the phrase has been talking about Buffon, but the thought was you bring Buffon into PSG and you put him between the sticks in the Champions League matches that matter, he would stabilize the players in front of him even if he's not the player he used to be. I don't think on further review that that analysis makes a whole lot of sense because I'm not sure he can carry them the way PSG need a keeper to carry them, his leadership notwithstanding. And moreover, let me just say, Buffon has worn his heart on his considerable sleeve over the last months and years, as we have documented on this pod. I can only imagine what it'll look like the first time Buffon goes haywire over some call that's made or some decision that goes against PSG and he's on the field and the French do that thing where they roll their eyes and click their tongues and are like, really, this is what we brought in. Can we get somebody stable? That's what they're going to do. Let's, I guess, uh, uh, move on from the uh, Buffon bashing. I I pointed out to you beforehand and I knew you knew this already, but uh, Buffon is close to the Italian word Buffone, which means clown. And uh, I think Gigi, if he goes off to PSG. Oh, my God, PSGG. Your word's not mine. That really would make him a clown, wouldn't it? Uh, let's, I guess, kind of wrap up the uh, other transfer rumor that we had seen that, that we thought was kind of worthwhile. The idea that Robert Lewandowski could perhaps make a move to Chelsea. Um, I know you think it makes a lot of sense. I still think it would be a dumb move for Bayern Munich. I don't know who you're going to have to replace him unless you're now looking to replace him. I don't know, like, what are you going to do, slide Muller up uh, to that position? I guess perhaps it could work. I'm not so sure that I would, I'd want to tie my, uh, my career to that, to that choice if I'm uh, their new manager, Kovac. So I don't know. I generally look at these transfer rumors in the 
viewpoint or through the eyes of the acquiring club. Because to me, once I see the rumor out there and or the willingness of the club to part with the player, they've already done the analysis of whether they can survive without him. So the question becomes, for me, does it make sense for Chelsea to acquire Lewandowski? And the answer to that is a resounding yes, because they had serious problems finishing. And while I have made fun of Lewandowski's uh, penchant for not finishing in recent months, the quality is still there, and the change of scenery might do him a ton of good. So I really believe that whoever manages Chelsea, it's probably not going to be Conte, whoever comes in at Chelsea is going to be a high-powered, serious manager. And putting Lewandowski on that club might even convince Hazard to stay. And if all those ingredients come together, now all of a sudden Chelsea are no longer struggling to stay in the top four. They are once again challenging for the league title. I agree. Um, I, I do think it would make sense for Chelsea to try to move. I just I don't know what Byron would be thinking in, in such a move. But anyway, let's move on to a couple things that also don't make sense. Uh, the Brandy Chastain uh, plaque that was put out that... I, I, d- I don't even know. I, look, when, when the Ronaldo bus was, was brought out at the Madeira airport in Portugal, it, it looked atrocious. And we all knew it looked weird. Like, the eyes were way too close together. The teeth looked weird. Like, the whole thing just was wrong. And I think I'd said a few weeks ago, I think it was Bleacher Report commissioned the uh, the sculptor. The guy was like a sculptor by, uh, not even by trade. He did it on, on the side. Um, he ended up doing a second one. It was much better. A much better looking Ronaldo. Um this Brandy Chastain plaque, uh, you, there, there's no resemblance. The only thing they got is the middle part. Uh, it, so it, here's it looks like, a, like an old, chubby man. Yeah, here's the background. So she was being inducted into the Bay Area Sports Hall of Fame. First of all, I didn't know there was a Bay Area Sports Hall of Fame. That seems pretty vague to me. There might not be after this. Well, okay, great. So she's in the Bay Area Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, in this picture that I'm looking at from the San Francisco Informer, she is standing next to this plaque, and we'll get to the likeness in, again in a second. Uh, she's next to Tim Hardaway, so that gives you a sense of the caliber of athlete who is going to be enshrined in the Bay Area Sports Hall of Fame. And I don't mean Tim Hardaway Jr., the, the kid who's still playing. I mean his father. So she's from San Jose, which is part of the reason she's being inducted into this Bay Area Sports Hall of Fame. And she's standing next to the plaque giving the thumbs up. Now, let me, let me just say this. My enduring memory of Brandy Chastain, just like many men from 1999 when she made the penalty kick that won the Women's World Cup for the United States, was, oh, she was the woman that took her shirt off and was in the jogging bra and looked great doing it. I'm not sitting here perving out on that. I'm just telling you, I remember the moment. I thought she looked terrific. She's objectively, by any standard, a good-looking person. I say all that, again, not to sound like a lecher. But to further emphasize how ridiculous this plaque ended up being. How could anybody have been shown this plaque and as representing what Brandy Chastain looks like and think, oh yeah, that's got it. We've got to be able to run with that. That looks terrific. Doesn't anybody make the decision before the ceremony happens? She's forced to stand next to it with a smile and a thumbs up and say, this looks like a middle-aged man. Like a football coach, not a it soccer like coach. Patton like Oswalt. a football coach. It looked a little bit like Patton Oswalt with I've a, heard Patton Oswalt. a middle I've heard, part, and yeah. and like it was kind of like pig faced. Maybe I've heard Peter King. That's oh, also fair. Oh, it does. So you know that's that's a disgrace, and it's a disservice to a woman and a player who deserved a lot better. 
Now, the good news is they are recommissioning this. And I love this quote from this article that I'm taking this from, from the Washington Post, where the Bay Area Sports Hall of Fame's president, a man named Kevin O'Brien, says, it's expensive, but it's the right thing to do, meaning getting another plaque done. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Kevin. You can close that hall if you can't afford to replace this plaque, because this plaque is a disaster. I mean, I was even willing to go so far as a young Bill Parcells with this plaque. And to do that to Brandy Chastain, again, a disservice, a disgrace. Everybody involved should be suspended, if not fired. And I hope that the new plaque is a better likeness and gets a tenth of the attention that this debacle did. But we both know that's not going to happen. Nope. No, it won't. Uh, Let's talk about one other thing that was uh, surprising, to say the least. Zlatan Ibrahimovic uh, finally kind of goes and... uh, does something that is not going to endear himself himself to uh, the soccer-hating groups in the U.S. He uh, he smacked the Montreal Impact defender uh, Michael Petrasso on the back of the head after his uh, foot had been stepped on. And I think the best part of it is not only the fact that he's probably like eight or nine inches taller, but he also, after smacking the guy in the back of the head, collapsed to the ground, uh, reminiscent of getting a headshot in good old halo 2 on the original xbox i don't know if you were much of a player of that phil but uh the uh through and through headshot is what it really looked like both players collapsed to the ground zlatan is sent off with a red card certainly not a uh, a good stretch of games here for the galaxy and for zlatan seems like maybe the honeymoon is over with zlatan and mls like it was all fun and games when he was here for a week and taking out ads in the paper and then going out and launching Uh, 40-yard volleys into the back of the net over hapless keepers and past defenders who were way overmatched. But here we are. It's a few weeks later. Zlatan is still an older player with a lot of mileage mileage on the legs, a lot of miles and years behind him. And this petulant display of him open-hand slapping a player in the middle of the pitch, in the back of the head, was a dope slap. It was like what a teacher would do if he was behind a student. You would know this. Uh, who was passing notes or, or saying hit something students, derogatory. Can't I'm hit not students. saying you'd hit anybody, but you understand what I'm trying to say. I understand. Um, it, was a, it was a cheap shot, back-of-the-head slap. I had two favorite things about this. The first was what you already mentioned, was that Zlatan's foot had been stepped on. So once he slapped this guy, and this guy went down from getting slapped, Zlatan looked around and was like, well, wait a minute, I can't be standing here after I slap this guy. This is no, not a good look for me. And he goes down like he's been shot because his foot had been stepped on. That was hilarious. Did not save him from a red card, but I did enjoy the effort. Okay. (laughs) The other piece of it is he's just so big, but he didn't hit the guy that hard. So the impact trainer comes on and starts tending to Michael Petrasso, who had received, he'd been on the receiving end of this slap. And he kind of like looks under Petrasso's hairline for bleeding or a scratch or a cut and there's nothing there he's just sweating profusely so the trainer takes the water bottle and just starts spraying him in the face and the forehead it's kind of like what i would do for my nine-year-old daughter on a lacrosse game where she had been like inadvertently clipped with a stick but no blood had been drawn but she insisted on being taken care of that's what you do like the most patronizing thing you'd possibly do is here let me just spray a little water on that for you so it was a bad look all the way around it was a terrible look for zlatan and it i hate to say it MLS keeps trying to climb out of the muck and prove itself as a legitimate serious league. That's a Keystone Cops moment. That's a low light. And 
that stuff has to stop if the league wants to get any kind of profile at all. Yeah, um, I, I guess, you know, in the grand scheme of MLS, they had, you know, that that ended up kind of, I think, overshadowing an interesting weekend of, of games. Um, our colleague at Crossing Broad, Anthony Sanfilippo, had gone to the uh, the Union Real Salt Lake game with uh, his bosses. And I said to him on uh, Snow the Goalie that I, I didn't see that as a victory for the Union. I was very wrong. It was a 4-1 uh, Union victory at home. I took my son to that match. Oh, my God. You and Anthony could have met up, and you didn't. And that's really sad. And that could have been a, a nice crossover. Again, um, MLS also introduced, or they're about to introduce, uh, YTF, another acronym for another thing that will make another mechanism that will make no no sense whatsoever in MLS. Um, I don't know if, if you happen to catch any of this, but this uh, youth transfer fund is essentially what it's being called. It's $3 million that a team can opt into uh, using by the 2022 season. Um, the idea is that it's going to be something where like uh, a team can go out and, and use it on a, a player that's 20 years old or younger. And, um, you know, I guess the idea here is to cultivate them, to grow them as a player, and then eventually to sell them for profit. And obviously the league gets a cut out of that. So it's interesting because in a, in a sense, you know, MLS has spent so much time over these last however many years trying to say that they're not a feeder program, that they're not a middleman, that they're not a, a league that looks to, you know, sell to bigger clubs to bigger leagues, but this YTF fund, I mean, there's, there's pretty much no other way to look at it unless the idea here is that MLS is really, uh, you know, in the business of trying to get, uh, scouts in South America and Latin America and, you know, really try to invest in, you know, even scouting for players in the U S the idea that, you know, you have $3 million essentially that you can opt into using over these next three and a half or so years, um, but only on players 20 or younger, it's interesting. It's another one of, of these uh, MLS-specific uh, rules and, and funds that I'm not too sure that our local team is going to use. But, you know, a team like Atlanta that already has all the money in the world, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they'll opt into this. My response to this is MLS does itself no favors by continuing to emulate the United States government. MLS is a United States soccer league. It doesn't need to become so bureaucratic and unnecessarily rules-laden that the average fan, and let's face it, the average MLS fan, is knowledgeable and cares about the club that he supports, but doesn't care about all this stuff and all these rules. I don't know why they have to put that $3 million limitation on there. If Atlanta United wants to spend $20 million on scouting, let them. But all I'm saying is, I don't want more things to think about in terms of the rules of acquiring players in MLS. I already have too much to worry about with designated player rules. It's enough already. I agree. I agree totally. You're absolutely spot on. Um, I guess last thing before we go is Alexi Lalas. We had talked about a while ago, uh, it might have been like episode three or something like that, that Alexi Lalas had kind of cut this, this almost like a wrestling promo where uh, Fox Sports was clearly trying to, you know, figure out who they're really trying to market the World Cup to. And one of the initial ones was calling Fox Sports the home of El Tree. And it got a lot of a lot of heat. And uh, a question was asked of Alexi Lalas. A uh, question was, uh, when the U.S. got eliminated from the World Cup, Fox Sports said it's the home of El Tree. How do you expect Americans to support the Mexican national team? He essentially went on to say um, that, you know, while he's an American and while he understands that there is a rivalry uh, with Mexico. It's it's this idea that um, the most American thing you can do is respect and recognize your biggest rival. 
the idea that you know if, if Mexico goes on to to do well, it I guess kind of helps the rivalry. Like I, I don't totally understand what he was getting at. It feels more of a sellout, and it just kind of seems like Alexi Lawless is trying to make himself relevant and get more and more in the news. So since I'm going to have a couple of choice comments here, uh, I would not want my words taken out of context. So. Look, our listeners have stuck with us this long on this show. They can survive me reading this quote. It's a relatively long quote. But here's the answer that Lawless gave. Quote, I'm not telling Americans to root for them. I'm telling them that me, as an American, I can appreciate and respect and support them in the World Cup. He means the Mexicans. Not just as an American, but as someone who played for the United States. The American team that I played for is not in this World Cup. I, like everybody, am looking for a team I can get behind. That is our major rival. I know rubs people the wrong way. In a strange way, it's the most American thing you can do to respect and recognize your biggest rival. No way does that diminish my pride or passion I have for the United States, and no way would I ever root for Mexico if they played the United States. We talk about the rivalry. At times, it's been very fierce and very personal. I'm friends with those guys. We've battled on the field, but I want to see Mexico do well. If it pains you to hear a former U.S. men's national team player say that, then you have bigger issues that are not just with me. Now, we have gone through those words. I have not taken anything out of context. I've read it all. Russell, I have problems. And the major problem I have, I was with him right up to the point where he tells me how to feel about his choices of who to support. I don't have bigger issues just because I have a problem with Alexi Lalas becoming Eltree's newest fanboy. For him to impute that I have some sort of bias or prejudice against our neighbors to the South because I don't want to root for Mexico in the World Cup, stuff it, Lalas. I'm not interested in that. You can do whatever you want, but we both know Fox is paying you a king's ransom to pimp this Mexico team through this World Cup coverage that they overpaid for, especially in light of the fact that our beloved, and more now my beloved than yours, Alexi, United States men national team didn't qualify. You're talking about, I played against these guys. Who the hell did you play against on this current Mexico side? I would love to know. You are so far in the past of the relevance of what's going on on the pitch in the United States for the United States national team that for you to suggest that your respect for the Mexican national team is born of your playing against them is ludicrous and silly. This is a cynical attention or money grab from you. We as fans of the United States men's national team and United States soccer, we all deserve better. Here endeth the lesson. That's beautiful, Phil. Spot on. I would applaud for you, but I don't want it to mess up my mic. Isn't that nice? Isn't that delightful? Um, no, it, it's it's well said. And um, like I was kind of getting at, I, I think Alexi Lawless, you know, kind of to your point, he's working for a network that paid copious amounts of money expecting that, you know, soccer was going to continue to grow in the country and that they were going to be able to build off of all of the, uh, you know, the successes that ESPN had with the most recent World Cup. And, you know, the fact that the U.S. men's national team, led by the great Bruce Arena, was unable to, uh, you know, secure a spot in the World Cup certainly didn't help them. I actually like some of the uh, the marketing that they've done recently, um, where they've kind of built it, uh, you know, obviously around specific players like Messi and, and Ronaldo. But there was also just kind of the idea of the world's game. Our, our boy Joel Embiid ended up in that commercial uh, juggling uh, a ball in his Sixers uniform it was kind of nice. Um I think Fox Sports is, is kind of still trying to find their footing and try to figure out how they're going to market this cup. And ultimately, you know, it, it might go down as, you know, a, a terrible uh, buy. And they certainly, uh, ESPN has to be 
thanking their lucky stars at this point that they didn't waste the money on this World Cup. Uh, I'll be interested to see what the uh, the ratings are going to look like for it. But, um, you know, I don't necessarily blame Alexi Laws for trying to, you know, strum up controversy uh, in, in order to, you know, get some people to focus in on it. But I don't think this is the way to go about it. And think it's ultimately... his implication that if United States fans are unwilling to accept him rooting for Mexico in the World Cup, that they have bigger issues that aren't just with Alexi Lalas. No, no, a thousand times no. Incorrect. You you went too far. To make a point, you went too far. It's not right. All right. Um, I wanted to get to really quick. There was somebody on Twitter who, uh, uh, John Harris, gave us uh, three things. I said, you know, does anybody have any questions for the show today? John Harris had a, uh, a three-tweet thing going, so I, I wanted to read this real quick. Can a person be a real soccer fan if he issues the lingo? For example, prefers uniform to kit, field to pitch, sideline to touchline, locker room to dressing room, etc. Those are just one country's, England's, words. Methinks there's some posing going on with football, uh, soccer. Actually, I at this point prefer the term football to soccer, but I really don't like kit and I'm just tired of pitch. Not a rant, just that I'd have, uh, that I've, a thought that I've had over the years. I feel no need to say many soccer-specific terms when we have mainstream words here for them. Just a different form of English here. If you don't like it, you can stick it in the boot of your lorry and bugger off. I thought that was well well said by John. Fair enough. Use whatever language you wish. I think it's that's, okay. That's the thing too. I've been accused of being a poser by using some of these phrases from the English idiom because I've been following it uh, from overseas for over a decade and some of the stuff sneaks into my language and people will accuse me of posing as a result. Well, I'm not going to apologize for using those phrases and I don't think John should apologize for using... Uh, field instead of pitch or uniform instead of kit do whatever you like uh, if you enjoy the sport you know fine use whatever words that fit for you it's a great way to uh to end this episode phil we've got the champions league final coming up this week uh what's your prediction for uh, real madrid and liverpool liverpool four real madrid three liverpool hanging on desperately for about 11 to 14 minutes uh, maybe even with a Real Madrid goal being chalked off or offside. It's going to be that sort of nail-biter. After a very open 70 to 75 minutes, Liverpool's going to try to shut the door, and they're just barely going to do it. I'm very hopeful that we don't get a repeat of the uh, the uh, Euro final where Ronaldo blew out his quad uh, mere minutes into the match. Uh, I, I would like to see a competitive one. Uh, there, there's something that tells me this is going to only be a 2-1 game. Uh, in a perfect world, I would love to see a high-scoring affair. I just don't know if I can wrap my head around how exactly these two teams get to like five to four. So I, I think I'm going to go with a a two-one final. Um, I'm still trying to figure out if Bale's going to end up being in that starting eleven or not. I think I, I would obviously update my my score prediction uh, based on what the starting eleven looks like. I think if Bale ends up coming in in the 60th or 65th minute. I think he's going to be the thing that, that kind of blows the top off it. If it's 1-1, he's going to be the reason that they get that goal. Uh, I certainly, once again, would expect that Marcelo is going to play you know, a, a major role in the offensive third and the final third. I do think that at some point in this matchup, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Marcelo kind of shading on Salah to try to shut him down the entire match. He gets himself caught up, or caught up in, uh, in the final third on a beautiful cross to Ronaldo that somehow, you know, manages to get its way back out on the counterattack, and uh, and Liverpool attacks that wide-open flank and ends up netting one from either Salah or, uh, or Mane. But, you know, however it works out, I think it'll, it could potentially uh, be an all-timer, and I'm going to, uh, 
you know, respect, respectfully be a homer on this. And uh, I've got Real Madrid winning 2-1. So that's, I think that's where I'm going to, I'm going to kind of put my, uh, my flag in the ground. So we'll see. We'll see you next week how this goes. Thank you again. Yeah. So uh, thanks to uh, everybody who listened. And as always, uh, you know, check out the uh, other shows on the Crossing Broad Podcast Network, including Crossing Broadcast, Crossed Up, Snow the Goalie, and It's Always Soccer in Philadelphia. Also, uh, if you get a chance, go to iTunes, leave a five-star review. The five-star ratings are great, but the reviews are the things that we will read on the show. So uh, take a couple minutes, write one, leave one. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll we'll be back next week to recap the uh, Champions League final, as well as uh, some of these other uh, promotion matches, English Championship and such, and uh, continue to do the uh, um, transfer roundups. So uh, we'll talk to you again next week. For Phil, at Phil Kaidel on Twitter, I'm Russ, at Joy on Broad. We will talk to you again next week.